Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. All right, well, let me start off on a lighter note. It's the apocalypse, folks. Um, (laughs) You know, I say that jokingly, but I also say it somewhat seriously. I want to explain what I mean by that when I say it's the apocalypse. The last 18 months have been apocalyptic. Um, Someone asked me right at the height of of COVID, right when when we were at the height of everything, it was actually not that, uh, about a year ago, is this the apocalypse? And I said, it's an apocalypse. Here's what I mean by that. The word apocalypse does not mean end of the world. The word apocalypse means revealing. The last 18 months are not the end of the world, but the last 18 months have been very revealing, haven't they? Right? I don't know if you listen to a lot of, uh, uh, you know, pop, hype, fluff, frou-frou, uh, you know, stuff in pop culture, but everyone was saying 2020 is going to be the year of 2020 vision, right? That was, we were play, making a pun, you know, 2020 vision is when your eyesight is perfect, right? That's the, uh, correct your eyesight so you can have 2020 vision, and here we are, we're going to have 2020, 2020, everyone's going to have 2020 vision, we're going to see things as they really are, and I think we did, uh, one of our friends uh, of our church, Jamie Fitt, said it this way in a sermon. He said, a lot of people said that last year would be the year of 2020 vision. I think we got 2020 vision. The question is, did we like what we saw? I think it was apocalyptic. Now, again, I want to clarify. Apocalypse does not mean end of the world. Apocalypse or apocalyptic means it was revealing. Does that make sense? We got to see a little bit about what's going on behind the scenes. We got to see a little bit about what's going on under the surface, things that were hidden in our lives, in our culture, in our government, in our society, were brought to the surface and jammed right in our face for us to stare at and come to grips with. That was apocalyptic. Now, I say that because for the next three weeks... We're going to be reading the book of Revelation, or we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, people often think of Revelation as apocalyptic, and it is, because actually the genre of literature that Revelation is, is called apocalyptic literature. There are portions of uh, the New Testament, portions of the Old Testament that fall into the apocalyptic genre, and Revelation in the New Testament is closely connected to Daniel in the Old Testament as containing a lot of apocalyptic literature. Now, Revelation and Daniel are not the only apocalyptic things that have ever been written. We as Christians, though, would say they're the only authoritative, divinely inspired apocalyptic uh, uh, The apocalyptic scripture is the only thing that was inspired or divinely uh, initiated by God and is authoritative and trustworthy. We're going to spend three weeks in the book of Revelation. Now, you might say, oh, three weeks in Revelation? Oh, you could spend forever in Revelation. We spent 12 weeks on the Old Testament, to which I would say, right, 12 weeks on the whole Old Testament. We spent 12 weeks on four Gospels. 
We spent 10 weeks on all of the epistles of Paul and Peter and James and John and others. So actually, even though three weeks might sound like not enough time for Revelation, it is the most that any book will get covered during this series. No other book got three weeks. The epistles is something like 23 books, I think, if I did my math correctly. The Old Testament is 39. Uh, The Gospels are four. Revelation is one. So we're going to spend three weeks. Certainly we could go longer in Revelation, but I want to just take three weeks and do an overview on Jesus in the book of Revelation. Uh, A couple years ago, we had this little, in in our dining room, I noticed on the wall, this little bump that was about the size of a quarter showed up one day. Didn't, it wasn't there one day and then the next day it was, just a little bump. Most people would maybe not even notice it. Definitely my wife and kids didn't even notice it. Um, I saw that bump and I thought, oh no. And if you've ever had to fix anything in a house that, that manifests as a bump on the wall, It looks so small. So here's what I started off with. I have this little saw that kind of gets weird angles, and I just cut out like it was the size of a quarter. I'll just cut out the size of a golf ball. No, no, I can, it's wet. It's moist. That's not good. So I decided to cut out a 12 inch by 12 inch square. Oh no, it's, I can tell that the water is coming from up here. So I just start going up and up till I hit the ceiling. And then basically, to make a long story short, an entire corner of my dining room had to be removed so that I could see, and it was a a leak in our stack pipe, I believe you call it in Philadelphia. I would call it the stink pipe. Uh, It was a little leak in our stack pipe that had to be fixed. That was apocalyptic. What I mean by that is it was revealing. What showed up as a little tiny bump on the wall ended up being a significant major problem that we had to deal with by cutting out a piece and replacing a piece and then redoing the wall and all that stuff. It was a lot of fun for something that was just the size of a quarter. And so the apocalyptic things, apocalyptic moments take place in our lives. Jesus loves to reveal things that are hidden. You know, a a family crisis can be apocalyptic for us. It'll bring stuff up that we didn't realize was there. It was hidden. It was under the surface. We've been maybe sweeping it under the rug and ignoring it. But Jesus brings that stuff up to the surface. Something that goes on at work could be apocalyptic in your personal life because it brings stuff to the surface. You realize, you know, what that people really think about you or say about you, whether that be good or bad. There can be uh, drug busts can, you know, in a small way, be apocalyptic because you realize that this little network of things in your neighborhood you didn't even know was there. All of a sudden, it's been blown off, and you see things for what they really are. So that's how I want us to think of the word apocalypse as revealing, which is why revelation is called revelation in English. Now, today we're going to look at 
this passage in Revelation 1 that I've, I don't know. I maybe have read this passage more than any other passage here at True Vine. It's a description of Jesus that the Apostle John gives in the beginning of Revelation 1. But before we read that description, it's been a long time since I've taught children's church, so I need to scratch that itch. So, Shay, if you could throw up this first picture I have here. Okay, there we go. That's a little flushed out here in the room, if it washed out. But okay, what do you see behind me on this screen? No, you don't know what that is? A doctor, right? How do you know that he, it's a cartoon, by the way, all right? How do you know that that cartoon is a doctor, right? What gives you, what clues do you see to help you understand that? The white coat, the white coat? okay, what else? Stethoscope, the thing on his head, the chart, okay? And the mask lets you know, of course, that he's a communist. That's a joke. Take it easy. Okay, 4th of July. All right. Now, I want to play a little bit with this doctor. Kendra told me not to make that communism joke, and I said, I'm going to do it. (laughs) Uh, I want to play a little bit with this image. Go ahead and give me the next slide, Shay. Okay. Can you see that from where you're sitting? What just appeared? Like a police badge, right? Now, I think if, you, if, if this was children's church, I'd say, what does a police badge represent? And they'd say, like, ah, authority or, you know, uh, whatever policemen represent authority. You're supposed to listen to them. They're supposed to help you, right? Okay, so we put this badge on him. We say, oh, he's a doctor. We know that he's a doctor because of his appearance. His appearance communicates certain things to us. He's, doctors are supposed to be uh, compassionate and provide care for us and have our health in mind. But he's also got a police badge on, which makes me think he's not not only a doctor, but maybe he's a law enforcement officer. Okay, give me the next slide, Shay. Oh, what's he got now? <clears throat> he's some sort of wrestling or boxing champion. This guy's got a lot of free time. He obviously doesn't have any kids. So not only is he a doctor and he's got some sort of law enforcement background, but he also is a heavyweight champion. What comes with that belt? When you see that belt, you think of probably like strength and toughness, right? Because that belt's not just to hold his pants up. It it actually represents something. Okay, give me the next one, Shay. What do we got here? Oh, okay, what's that? A chef's hat. Okay, he's got a chef's hat on, so he's got some culinary skills. Maybe he's creative. He likes fine food. Give me the next one, Shay. Oh, ballet slippers. Graceful like a doe. This is a really cultured educated dude here. He's got the grace of a ballet dancer, right? Okay, keep going. Give me the next one. Oh, he's got hearts in his eyes. Okay, Loretta got it. He's in love. It's not that his, his eyes are bloodshot. He's in love because, you know, in cartoons, Bugs Bunny, all that stuff, if, if you see hearts in their eyes, what's that mean? They're in love, right? Okay, so see how like what we're seeing in the image here, there's symbols and pictures that are applied to his, uh, his appearance that help us understand who he is and what he's about. Keep going. I think we got two or three more. Oh my goodness, that is not a cigar. That's a baseball bat. He's got a baseball bat coming out of his mouth. Now, I actually don't know what that means because I made this up. But here's, if someone saw that, they could interpret that two ways. He talks baseball. He likes to talk about sports. You know, and out of his mouth is coming baseball. Or another way you could interpret that is his words are like a baseball bat. 
He just bludgeons people with his words, hits them with a blunt object, and his words hurt, okay? I think there's one more that we're going to throw up there, and his hand is a wrench. And how would we interpret that if a guy has a wrench in his hand? He's handy, probably, right? So, okay, last slide, Shay. This will just be the original image plus this one. Okay, there's the original doctor, and there's this guy with all the metaphors and imagery to help us understand him more better, as we would say in Philadelphia. Okay. (laughs) Now, there is a description of Jesus that is used in both the book of Daniel as well as the book of Revelation that this has prepared us to read. Daniel and Revelation really click together very nicely. And as we go through Revelation today, I'm going to pull us back to Daniel. In November, I preached to you about the Son of Man. If you remember that, it was November 15th. Uh, I preached to you about the Son of Man. We are going to touch back on that passage as well as a few other places in Daniel today quickly. But let me read from Revelation chapter 1. Uh, This is verses 12 through 17. This will be on the screen. This is the Apostle John. He is in exile on an island by himself. He says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. No one should have been speaking to him. He's in exile by himself. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. So you read this passage and if you don't know how the whole story of the Bible fits together, you just think, wow, what a weird thing to see. This, this being who has burning eyes, a sword coming out of his mouth, his face is shining and you're like, I don't know who that is. I guess it's God and it is God, but specifically it's Jesus. This is Jesus. Now this is, remind, remind you, this is apocalyptic Jesus. This is Jesus when all the curtains have been pulled back, when the limitations of his human body are not restricting him anymore. This is full Jesus. This is super Saiyan Jesus. You know, like maxed out. Okay, thank you, uh, young people, for getting that joke. This is Jesus on full display revealed no hiddenness. This is Jesus, okay? Does that make sense? Now, we're gonna go through, there's actually nine elements of his description here that we're gonna look at. So the the son of man, the clothing, the head and the hair, the eyes like fire, and a few others. We're gonna look at those and see if we can understand. Just like the doctor had, you know, the hearts in his eyes meant he was in love. The badge on his chest meant he had authority. What did Jesus' burning eyes mean? What does the sword coming out of his mouth mean? What about that white woolly hair that he had? What does that mean? We're going to look at that, that right now. So in verse 13, the first description that John makes is, he was one like a son of man. Okay, so son of man is 
Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself in the Gospels. He calls himself Christ a few times, Messiah a few times, but over 80 times in the Gospels, it's the most frequent way that Jesus refers to himself, he calls himself the Son of Man. And if you go back to, uh, in November, when we looked at that passage, when we looked at that name, the Son of Man, that was the name that got him in a lot of trouble because in Jewish history, the Son of Man was an actual figure uh, from the book of Daniel that they anticipated. So this will not be on the screen. You can go here in your Bibles if you want, but Daniel chapter seven, I'm going to try to in 90 seconds review that sermon on the son of man. Daniel chapter seven, starting in verse nine, Daniel, not John, now we're old Testament. Daniel sees this vision. He says, I kept looking until thrones, multiple thrones were set up and the ancient of days, that's God, the father took his seat. His vesture or clothing was white like snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels like a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Okay, so Daniel sees this vision. There's a throne. It's on fire. The throne's got wheels. They're on fire. Fire, fire everywhere. And on the throne is someone called the Ancient of Days who we understand to be God the Father. Okay, let's pick up verse 13. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven, a second character now, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days. Okay, so now the second character called the son of man approaches the first character, the ancient of days. The ancient of, uh, the, the son of man was presented before him and to the son of man was given dominion glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So this is the scene. The the father is known as the Ancient of Days. He's sitting on a throne. A second character comes up to him who is called the Son of Man, which means Son of Man, human, but also what's the Son of Man riding? The clouds. Only God rides clouds. So the second character is somehow both human and God. And he comes up and what does the ancient of days give him? Dominion and authority over the whole earth. So that's the character in Jewish thought. That's the character of the son of man. So when Jesus says, I am the son of man, he's saying, I am that one who rode clouds up to the ancient of days, I am that one the ancient of days gave authority and dominion over all the nations of the earth to. That's why Jesus ended up being killed because that's a claim to be God. Well, get get us back to Revelation 1 here. John sees him and he says, one like the son of man. That's what that phrase is hearkening back to. John goes on to describe Jesus' clothing in verse 13. This is the second description. In verse 13, he says, he was clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. You know, the only person in Jewish culture that would have a robe going down to their feet was a high priest. So Jesus is wearing the robe 
of a high priest. And we know from the epistles that Jesus is the high priest of our faith. He's the ultimate mediator. He's the only real mediator between us and God, and that's Jesus. So the clothing represents his priestly purity. Exodus 28 and 29 talk about the robe of the high priest. Now this also, remember, uh, let's go back to Daniel again. I love, I love the connection here between these two books. Daniel chapter 10, again, now we're talk, not talking about John in the New Testament, we're talking about Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 10, in verse 5, Daniel has a vision. Another vision. This isn't even the ancient of days vision, this is a, a separate vision. Daniel, like, lived a wild life. He says, I lifted my eyes. Tell me this doesn't sound just like John. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold. Okay, what did John see? A man who had a robe with a gold sash around his chest. What did Daniel see? The same thing. Dressed in pure linen with a belt of gold around his waist. His body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. What did John say? His face shone like the sun. Now you can either split hairs between the difference of the sun and lightning, or you can say that's just two ways to say the same thing, which is his face was radiant. Daniel says his eyes were like flaming torches. Okay, well, John said he had eyes like fire. Right? I mean, are they seeing the same thing, or is this a coincidence? His arms and feet were like the gleam of polished bronze. John said his feet were like glowing bronze. Okay? The sound of his words were like the sound of a tumult, tumultuous, a crowd, a roar. John said his voice sounded like the roar of many waters. It's incredible the similarities between these two descriptions here. Now, some people, time out, some people think what Daniel saw was an angel because the conversation that they have subsequent to this, it, some people think Jesus wouldn't have that conversation. I think the conversation that takes place after this is with a totally different being. Jesus, uh, sorry, Daniel sees Jesus but has a conversation with an angel later. I'm not going to get any deeper into that. I just want to address it because some people, you might find in your study that some people think this is an angel. It's split 50-50. There's good people that think either way. And how did Daniel respond to this? Daniel 10, 9, this is not on the screen. I heard the sound of his words. As soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground, a.k.a. I passed out. What did John do? I fell at his feet like a dead man. This is really the same story with two different people. You seeing the connections here? So the clothing, the, the reason I got into this was the clothing is the beginning of the similarities of the description between Daniel and John. When John's describing his clothing, now just imagine you're a Jewish person, you already have read Daniel, now you're reading John, you're like, oh, that's, that's what Daniel saw. You know, it's clicking for you. Okay, let's keep going. The third description, his head and his hair, verse 14, his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Okay, I'll just quickly pass over this, Daniel 7, 9. The only other person in the Bible that has hair that's white like wool is the Ancient of Days, God. And now Jesus is described as having the same hair. 
as God. So it's a God illusion there. Not illusion, allusion. He's alluding to God. Okay. Now, what is that, you know, what does the chef's hat mean that I put on the doctor? He creative, likes to cook. What does this white hair mean? Well, Proverbs says in a couple different places, and uh, it says the, the honor of an old man is their gray hair. A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of the righteous, Proverbs 16, 31. Gray hair has to do with wisdom, right? Gray hair has to do with wisdom. I see you're all touching your gray hair right now, like, like you're so proud of it. Okay. Listen, we, gray hair comes with experience, right? And can I just uh, say this? Wisdom does not come with age. Wisdom comes with experience. Hypothetically, age and experience should travel together, but they don't always. But you see, like, it's been interesting during the last year and a half because we didn't see each other all that much because we were all, it's been interesting how much wiser some of you have gotten. You know, I don't know, it's been really fun to see Scott Newcomer get wise right here. You know, he's not here to defend himself today. And, and, uh, you know, that gray hair, you think of wisdom, maturity, dignity, honor, respect. That's what gray hair means. Growing in wisdom is what gray hair means. So what would white hair mean? Perfect wisdom. Jesus is not growing in wisdom at this point. He has perfected wisdom. That white hair tells you he knows everything there is to know. There's not a, 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 a lick of color left in there. It's, it's white like wool, like snow, like McManus level white hair, perfect wisdom. I'm just getting on all the people that aren't here to, to defend themselves. Well, John and Judy are both very wise. Okay. So that's the head and the hair. Let's move on to the eyes like a flame of fire. Verse 14, it says his eyes were like a flame of fire. I already pointed out that Daniel saw the same basically description in Daniel 10.6. He talks about how his eyes were like torches that were on fire. This description of Jesus' eyes like flaming fire represent intensity, passion, and zeal. Mike Bickle says it this way, his eyes are pure. These are pure eyes. And it has kind of two ways of looking at this. When Jesus looks at you, he looks in total purity. There are no ulterior motives when Jesus looks at you. His eyes look at you in total perfect purity. He's not trying to manipulate you trick you, get something out of it. He looks at you with totally pure eyes and pure motives. And then the flip side of that is the purity in his eyes provokes out of you purity. Have you ever, I have a friend who has just like super intense eyes. And when I talk to him, I just can't lie. Because I'm like, yeah, he's gonna, he can read my mind. Like, you know, like just, just the intensity of his uh, look is just like, just be honest. He's going to know anyway, right? 
That is the way Jesus' fiery eyes impact us. You know, when, when we stand like where John stood or where Daniel stood and we see those eyes like fire, we're not going to be able to excuse, hide, lie, trick. And if you and I can live in front of those fiery eyes now, we can live lives of purity. That, so Mike Bickle says it this way, that pure fire is the purifier. Understanding the, the purity that he looks at you will provoke in you purity as you look at him. So eyes that burn like fire, intensity, passion, zeal. I mean, Jesus' eyes are not glossed over like some of you right now. You know, he, Jesus is fully engaged, fully awake, fully focused, fully passionate, fully zealous about his love for you. Let's continue. Feet like glowing bronze. Verse 15, it says his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. Uh, scholar Craig Keener describes the feet this way. Those bronze feet are, represent stability and security. Now, I'm not going to read any more from Daniel, but in Daniel, there's, a, there's a, an idol or a picture. He sees uh, a statue that has like clay feet. Because the feet are made of clay, they crumble and the whole statue comes down. Jesus' feet are not clay, they're bronze. They are a hard, solid, stable, precious metal. Jesus' feet provide stability and security. Let's continue. His voice like roaring waters, verse 15. It says, uh, his voice was like the sound of many waters, Daniel described it as tumultuous, like the sound of a crowd or the sound of roaring. This would be the type of thing that would provoke awe in us. It's the kind of thing that you would hear and you would get goosebumps. You would stop in your tracks. <clears throat> My wife and I like to take, uh, twice a year, we like to go to the Poconos. And my wife likes to visit little waterfalls, you know, like, uh, you know, 50 or 100 foot waterfalls. There was this one waterfall that we wanted to visit, but we could not figure out how to get there. There was no like marked trail. We just had to listen for it. We knew generally where it was and we'd have to take our kids into the middle of this forest and there was no trail. So it was just like, listen for the roar of water and go toward it. And the, this is the reason I share this. The closer we got, the more excited we got. The more, the, the more we could hear it, we're like, oh, we're almost there. And we'd start looking and we could never find it. It took us three attempts to finally find the waterfall. But the roar of the waters only made us want to get closer. Jesus' voice is compared to roaring, tumultuous waters. It produces excitement and awe in us. It makes us want to get closer. We want to see what this is about. It's awe-inspiring. It says in the book of Acts that the church in Acts was filled with awe, something that is missing from, even at times in our church, but many churches, missing a sense of awe, a sense of excitement, a sense of like, what's he going to do next? A sense of like goosebumps that come from the Holy Spirit, a sense of awe. Well, that roaring voice is awe-inspiring. Verse 16 says that in his right hand, he was holding seven stars. Uh, well, that's what it says. In his right hand, he held seven stars. 
What are those seven stars? If you just skip down to verse 20, it tells you exactly what the seven stars are. It says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Not going to get too deep into this, but immediately after this vision, Jesus gives John seven messages to deliver to seven churches that are in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And he's saying, I'm holding the 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 angels or the messengers of those churches in my hand. And I'll just back off a little bit and say, I'm holding the churches in my hand. In, in one hand, he's holding seven churches. That communicates to us his sovereignty, his protection, his care, that he's got the whole church in his hand. One hand. You know, it actually says, I think it's in Isaiah, that the government rests on his shoulder, not even both shoulders. He can put the government of the world on one shoulder, like slinging my kids over one shoulder. I don't even need both shoulders. The whole government of the world is a one-shoulder job. The leadership of the church he can do with one hand tied behind his back because he's got the church in his right hand. That recognizes the sovereignty, the control, uh, the protection over the church. Verse 16 also says that a sword comes out of his mouth. Uh, it says, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This is interesting that, that he's not holding this sword in his hand like you and I would think of. It's not strapped to his side. It's coming out of his mouth. Now, uh, this should not be a, a strange idea to us because the New Testament refers to this idea of the sword of the Spirit being a word. Ephesians 6.17, when it's referring to the armor of God, says the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. Okay? Uh, Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. You know, to us, a sword is a sword. But to Jesus, his weapon is the word or his word. And it is still true. This is still the reality. Words are more powerful than weapons for both good and bad. Words the ideas that are communicated by words have more power than weapons. And when Jesus comes to set everything right and to destroy everything that hinders love, when Jesus comes to do that, he's going to use words. He's going to say, that is unjust, that is just, that's unrighteous, that's righteous. Because, and that's exactly what we need right now because in our culture, we, have, we are now full-on headfirst into calling wickedness good and good things, righteousness, bad. Jesus is going to come and use words and he's going to bring everything back into its correct place. He's going to speak, and just like he did at creation, he's going to speak and things are going to happen. They're going to come into existence. They're going to appear. They're going to take place. He's going to use his words. He's going to battle with the sword of his mouth. Finally, last description. His face shines like the sun. Verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, Daniel describes it like lightning, but there is one other place that alludes to this, and it's during the transfiguration in Matthew 17. And this is not going to be up on the screen either, 
but let me just read Matthew 17. Jesus takes Peter, and I preached on this not too long ago. I don't know if you see like the Bible is actually a cohesive thing, story. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. And when he does, it says in Matthew 17 too, Jesus was transfigured or metamorphed before him. His face shone like the sun. His garments became as white as light. Huh. Do you guys see that now we've seen Daniel in the Old Testament while in exile, some of the disciples in the Gospels, now John at the end of the Bible, are all seeing and describing Jesus the same way. And actually, it was during his time in the Gospels when Jesus put on a human form that that shining sun face was hidden, but now it's being revealed. So what's interesting, so his face shining like the sun represents glory. That's evident every time there's a shining face in the Bible, it's glory. But here's what's interesting about this to me. John would have read Daniel and known this, John was on that mountain. The same John that wrote Revelation 1 was there for the transfiguration. And what did they do at the transfiguration? After they see Jesus' face shining like the sun, verse 6, Matthew 17, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground and were terrified. Are you picking up on a theme here? Right? Right? So let me review really quickly. If you can throw the last slide up for me, Shay. Uh, This is just a review. The Son of Man title represents his human and divine authority over the nations. His clothing uh, represents the kingly authority and priestly purity. His head and his hair, the wisdom, glory, and honor that Jesus has. His eyes, purity, passion, and zeal. The feet, like burnished bronze, represent stability and security. His voice is divine and awe-inspiring. His hand represents sovereign control and protection over the church. His mouth reminds us of the means by which Jesus brings justice. And finally, uh, his face is an attribute of his divine glory, okay? Just like that doctor with all the stuff attached to him, this is what Jesus is trying to communicate to us through this image. A.B. Simpson writing about this passage, says this. If you could look through the open door that John saw, you would behold a man in the midst of the throne and in control of all the governments of the universe and all the destinies of humanity. This picture of Jesus in Revelation 1 is the beginning of the final plot twist of the Bible. We're starting to tie up all the loose ends when we get to Revelation 1 because, listen, they're reading this and they're like, wait, That guy from Daniel, that's Jesus? The guy Daniel saw was Jesus? The son of man? The son of man character that's going to get all the dominions? That's Jesus? Like the story's starting to come together like the end of a good movie with a plot twist. It's all starting to, to piece together. That baby that was in the manger, that's this guy with the sword coming out of his mouth? They're the same? That helpless man on a cross that didn't even defend himself is the guy with eyes like fire? That's the same person? And I think for the Apostle John, 
That guy that I laid my head on at the Last Supper, that now, so I was so familiar with Jesus at the Last Supper that I leaned over and leaned on him. Now I see him and I'm falling down like a dead person. Imagine the impact this had on John. You know, I've fished with this guy. Imagine spending three years with someone, traveling, eating meals, fishing, learning. You find out they're like the king of the universe. All of the familiarity that you had built with them over the years immediately turns into reverence. And he falls down like a dead person. It's the same Jesus that John laid his head on is now the one that he's seeing. Um, there's only been a couple of times in my life where I have observed a person genuinely without any pretense or fakeness fall down in front of God, fall, fall down in the presence of God. Um, and it's always because they see God in some sort of majestic way. I think, um, I still believe that people can be so overcome by the power of God that their body gives out. I still believe that that can happen because it happened in the Bible. I do believe that it's often faked that people would, people are focused on the falling down part, not the eyes like fire part. But I think that as people, as we can see Jesus the way John saw Jesus, I expect that we're going to get weak in the knees from time to time. I expect that that's going to have an impact. And what I, what I want to, I guess, help us get to is like, you know, in Daniel in the Old Testament, this is what Jesus looked like. And in Revelation in the New Testament, this is what Jesus looked like. And even in the Gospels, he pulled back the curtain for a minute on the mountain of transfiguration to say, this is me for real. And I think that that's the view of Jesus we should have often when we're in worship. And, and of course, everything he did in the Gospels is just as equal and valid. I just want to add to that the glorified Jesus. You know, he, as Misty Edwards say, he's not a baby in a manger anymore. He's not a broken man on the cross. He didn't stay in the grave and he's not staying in heaven forever. I mean, th this, I want to, I want to encourage you when you're worshiping, use your sanctified imagination to picture what John described. Eyes that burn like fire, a sword coming out of the mouth, a face that shines like the sun. I want to, I would encourage you to picture that. So here's how we're going to respond today. We're going to do communion slightly differently. I think sometimes we just need a little nudge to uh, respond to God. We have communion elements. They're actually up here on the stage. Um, you're going to come and get your communion element, and you have a couple options. If you would like to kneel at the front of the stage, you can do that. There's space up here for that. As always, the front row is totally empty. If you would like to use the front row and kneel in the front row or sit in the front row or you even have permission to lay down on the ground if you would like. 
or you can take your communion back to your seat and you can interact with God there. There is no, this is not a one-size-fits-all thing. I just want you to know there are options available to you. So you can come to the, kneel or sit at the stage, lay down on the floor, kneel at the front, sit in a seat. You can respond. You can stand if you want to stand. I just want to ask you to do this. As we close in worship, as we take communion, use your sanctified imagination to picture Jesus because the one that loves you, the one that died for you is the one John described with fiery eyes, white hair like wool, a sword coming out of his mouth, a voice like a tsunami. He loves you. He died for you. And communion reminds us of that. Do we have the communion... uh, declarations, Shay. We're going to read these together. After we read these, you can come up and grab your communion elements and then you can respond however you would like. Let's read this together. We believe that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We believe that in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We declare that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. With reverence and solemnity, we declare that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. We advise that everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves." So Jesus, we bless these elements, both the bread, which is your body, and the cup, which is your blood of the covenant, as a means to remind us of your return, of your crucifixion, of your atonement. Would you use communion as a way for us to encounter you? And I pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. When you're ready, you can come up, take communion however you would like. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.